0: Hi everyone, this is Christiana Best, assistant professor at the University of St. Joseph, host and creator of the podcast Inside Out, Outside In. This podcast was developed for and by colleges and universities. The podcast is framed around the themes of diversity, inclusion, and equity. Our goal is to educate, inform, and build community, as well as inspire change. It is important to note that the views, information, and beliefs expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of any college or university or the Hartford Consortium of Higher Education. Hi everyone, welcome to Inside Out, Outside In. I'm very happy to be here today with five faculty members from universities in Connecticut. My guests are here today to talk about COVID-19 pandemic and the intersection of equity, um, both in their personal lives as well as their professional lives. But in the midst of the pandemic, we are still dealing with uh, significant racial uh, issues. And most recently, we have lost the lives of three people who were brutally killed by uh, police or police wannabes. And they were just back to back and it's been really difficult. So I want to first acknowledge and recognize and lift the names up of Ahmaud Arbery, Brianna Taylor, and George Floyd. May they rest in peace. And just to also acknowledge that um, these three deaths um, have really rocked my life and my world as a Black mother and a mother of a son. And I know that at least four of my guests today are, in fact, mothers of Black children as well. So, um, just to get started, I want to introduce Fiona Vernell, who's a historian at the University of Connecticut. Yvonne Patterson, who is assistant professor at uh, Central uh, Connecticut University. Lucinda Canti, who is an assistant professor of nursing at the University of St. Joseph. Katie and Reed, who is the Director of Public Health at the University of St. Joseph, and Gina Roche, who is also an Assistant Professor in the Social Work Department at the University of St. Joseph. In our conversation today on COVID-19 and equity, um, I'd like to just uh, start by saying I have to just talk about the sadness and the helplessness that I'm feeling, and I know some of you may also be feeling that as a result of uh, who you are and how you walk in this world. But um, so as we, just to get started, I'd like to ask you to um, introduce yourself just uh, tell in about a minute or so, give us a sense of who you are in terms of your professional and personal identity. Um, So I'm gonna start with Yvonne.
1: Hi everyone, Um, it's really good to be in your company. Thank you so much, um, Christiana, for inviting me to be a part of this. Um, It's been an experience for me since the pandemic has started and I think that this is the perfect um, format to or the platform to really talk about some of those experiences, because it kind of intersects with different roles that I play in my life. And so I'll just start off by talking about who I am. I'm a mother, I'm a daughter, sister, and a friend. I consider myself a learner, and I'm also a teacher. One of the major roles that I, I um, connect to and very, very connected to is this idea of being a teacher. Currently, I am employed by Central Connecticut State University as an assistant professor. I teach in the social work program and have been here for close to about five years. Now, prior to that, I um, taught at different institutions in Connecticut and one in um, Massachusetts. The the last few that I taught at were um, Eastern Connecticut State University. I've also done some work at UConn where I graduated graduated from with um my my bachelor's, master's, and PhD. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was kind of an incestuous kind of um, relationship. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'm also, I would be remiss if I don't talk about some of the other important things that are going on in my life in terms of being a researcher. I'm originally um, from Jamaica, and so Jamaica is always in my heart. I grew up in um Hartford, Connecticut after I um was brought here by my parents in in the 80s and there's a thriving community as Fiona knows so well cuz she this is a research area in 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 terms of immigrants in the um in Connecticut but specifically in Hartford there is a thriving community and I was in the heart of that during the the 80s and the 90s. And so part of my research building or what I connected to was my community and how I could improve it. And one of the areas that I I am currently working with is HIV AIDS health disparities and how it impacts women and relationships in terms of um, Jamaican women and their relationships, both here in the United States and in Jamaica as well. I've also diverted my attention towards exploring this idea of cultural awareness and what it really means and more specifically what it means in the classroom.
0: Thank you very much, Yvonne. You're F- welcome. Fiona?
2: Uh, hi, I am Fiona Vernal. I am originally uh, from Jamaica. I grew up in uh, Trenton, Trenton, New Jersey, um, which has a demographics looks a lot like like a lot of um, cities like Hartford. I am a professor of history and Africana studies at the University of Connecticut. Other than a small stint in um, Michigan, I consider myself an East Coast uh, person. I've been at the University of Connecticut since 2005. I work um, all across the African diaspora, so I focus on South Africa for a major part of my research, but I also work on uh, 20th century um, immigration history, particularly focusing on Caribbean immigrants. Currently, I'm focused on a project on the history of housing in Hartford, the intersections of housing for African-Americans, Puerto Ricans, and... Uh, West Indians uh, in this region using housing as a lens to understand how and why people left home and how they made Hartford um, their home. And as we consider what's happening with COVID right now, you know, the main thing that's on my mind is the long shadow of this pandemic and what it will mean for, for people um, as the eviction crisis rolls out. Um, across the across the U.S., so I'll I'll leave that there for now. Thank you,
3: Gina. Hi, my name is Gina Rosage, and I am an assistant professor in the social work department of uh, University of Saint Joseph. Uh, I am a native New Yorker who moved here, Connecticut, <laughs> moved here to Connecticut uh, in order to join the faculty at USJ. Um, I identify as queer. And I am also uh, Jewish and Puerto Rican, uh, which are parts, integral parts of my identity. Uh, and um, in terms of my areas of interest and research, I am focused on issues of uh, discrimination and, and policy uh, around LGBT rights, primarily. Right. Um, I also have an interest in um, economic disparities and the housing homelessness issues for people um, who are LGBTQ, employment discrimination. I'm working on a couple of projects right now uh, um, related to human rights work, and uh, I'm very excited to be part of this podcast today.
0: Thank you. Um, Lucinda? Hi, everyone.
4: My name is Lucinda Kianti. I'm an assistant professor of nursing at the University of St. Joseph, I've been teaching there for 10 years. I teach in the undergraduate and graduate nursing program. I'm also a certified nurse midwife. I still provide reproductive health care. Um, I currently graduated from University of Connecticut with my PhD in nursing. The focus of my research, I I should say my dissertation was, um, it's not always rainbows and unicorns, the lived experience of severe maternal morbidity among African American women. And and I am an African-American woman and a mother of a 10-year-old son who I love dearly and worry about, you know, because of the current climate. But I also, um, well, I should say my research focus is really looking at what the causes of maternal mortality and morbidity, especially among black women, and just kind of reducing, I wanna reduce those racial and ethnic um, health disparities in, um, you know, um, HIV, cervical cancer, breast cancer, mortality. I also have an interest in diversity in nursing education. The overarching goal of my research is to really kind of understand and um, dismantle structural racism to improve the health outcome among marginalized communities. Thank you. Katie.
5: Thank you, everyone. Uh, Thanks for the invite. It's always nice to be in a platform with colleagues who are so vested in people of color's interests. So my name is Kayden Reed, I'm at um, University of St. Joseph in the Department of Public Health. Currently my role is as an assistant professor and the director of her Masters of Public Health program. I generally think of myself as a public health practitioner and researcher or academia, if you wanna look at it in that sense, meaning that I have both experience in practice and research coming from New York, working at New York State Department of Health, having a series of fellowship that kind of set the foundation for my research agenda. I'm pretty much a health disparity researcher. I focus primarily primarily on um, adolescent population, mostly Caribbean blacks youth. So generally, when we look at the black data, they're often aggregated, and mm-hmm. we know that there, there are quite a difference between an African-American youth and a Caribbean Black, or even someone from Africa. We know that there's some differences. Mm And when you look at health outcomes as sexual behavior, which is what I focus on, there are some great um, disparities and differences. So I wanted to look within the Black population mm-hmm. of youth, particularly fo- with a focus on Caribbean Black. So that's really my area of interest, health disparities, adolescent population, and I'll talk more why I'm interested in adolescent population. Mm-hmm. So just to give a sense, that my that's my background. So I welcome the opportunity to speak and dialogue on what's going on on COVID-19 and some unforeseen heartbreaking circumstances around racism that we see are playing out every day in the media
0: so you're also a mother of a young child as well
5: right? yes I am uh, she just turned two so I'm very grateful for that I'm very blessed she arrived what a week before graduation so okay. <laughs> Um, I'm happy about that, Um, so I'm I'm so um, blessed to have her and my family in my life.
0: Thank you all for being here. I am so excited to um, spend the next hour with you talking about some of the systemic issues um, of racism and inequity um, among people of color and other marginalized groups. Um, And so let's get started. Um, Now that we know who you are professionally and personally, um, my first question is to um, sort of unpack what we've been noticing with um, COVID-19, with the COVID-19 pandemic. So COVID-19 has revealed a great deal of systemic inequities. Um, We kind of anticipated that it's going to impact the poor, but I have to tell you, I was a little surprised by how it has impacted people of color and primarily black people in terms of the number of deaths, the number of people who are sick, um, and also uh, Latinos as well. Um, but it has also revealed a great deal of racism around the LGBT community as and Asian Americans. Um, so I'd like to ask you um, if you can share with the audience uh, based on your practice as well as uh, your teaching and knowledge um, of your community, if you can just share with us uh, how you know uh, how this pandemic has impacted the communities you serve and the communities you work in. Um, I'm going to start with the public health, and then I'll move to the historian. Um, the nurse, and certainly social the social workers would come in after that?
5: Uh, well, this is a really, um, such a such a path question. And I'll try my best, as a public health practitioner, we see this play out every day. I wrote about this recently in an op-ed. And even before the epidemic kind of unraveled in our community, I'm not surprised that we're here, honestly. Uh, we have a significant amount of our population, especially here in Connecticut, that have chronic disease, black, in the black community. And if you wanna drill that down, in the Hartford area, there's a significant amount of Jamaican or Caribbean, and those chronic disease are ramping in our community. So I'm not surprised, because if you look at the risk factors, um, high blood pressure, if you want to say hypertension, is one of the leading cause of um, risk factor where you see the death rates are higher for a person of color. So chronic disease, is something to think about. While we see, especially in Black community, this concept of multi-generational household, it has to, to, to um two angles. It's a plus that we live in a multi-generational household for support, right? Because um, that's what we know, that we have been relying on our family for support and especially in the same um, quarters. We could also look at it that in, a, in, in the light of infectious disease, it's, it it deems can be deadly as we can see, especially in the Caribbean or black community. So those are two things. Another thing that we rarely hear about, we always hear about uh, essential workers, but we often don't hear about the low skill essential workers, right? And how because of their occupational exposure, they're even more at a greater risk and once they're home, they don't have the opportunity to um, go to their basement. They don't have those um, um, facilities where they could quarantine. If they live in If they live in a home, they may not have the room to isolate or quarantine. So some of those things that we are seeing playing out in our community, and we could think about residential segregation, but I'm not going to go into that because that also adds to it. So public health we look at addressing health from a population um, standpoint we don't focus on individual eventually it does impact individual but we want to um, contain um, control and prevent um, healthy lifestyle we know that social determinants of health greatly affect people of color right? So social determinants of health could come in the form of where people live, transportation, and I'll talk a little bit more about that with some um, question that I'm quite sure you'll ask. But when we look at social determinants of health, the consequences of social determinants of health is health disparities. And that's what we're seeing right now, right? It's not that health disparity is something that's new. It has always been around, what happened is with COVID-19 and what we're seeing with um, racism is that it's put, it's making it more obvious in our face. Some of us have decided not to want to address it, but because of what's going on, it's right in front of us. So we're more aware of it. Awareness is good, but it's not good enough. Mm-hmm. Right? So we need to act upon it. So when we think about those systemic um, issues that, we are effect, that are affecting people of color from a public health standpoint. Yes, if you look at it from a community standpoint, and if you look at it from a population standpoint, we will continue to see these things, unfortunately, if we don't have the right policies and practice in place.
0: Thank you, Katie. And at some point, we're gonna to move to action steps, and I'm hoping you can share some of those with us from a public health perspective. Um, so next is the historian
2: so, as this pandemic has been unfolding, one of the more interesting um, things for me has been to to think about the Spanish flu, um, <laughs> for example in nineteen in nineteen eighteen, and to think about the ways that the social determinants of health manifested then, and why, more than a century later, we would pretty much have the same conversation about the meaning of poverty, what patient care means for um, people of color, lack of access to quality care, in this case, for COVID, lack of access to affordable care, and to be able to say that a historian I don't see I don't see that much difference, right? Um, during the the Spanish flu, blacks were relegated to segregated hospitals. Well, we don't have segregated hospitals now, so we have to ask the questions about why do we still have those same kinds of outcomes. Uh, during the Spanish flu, right, African-Americans specifically were engaged Um, in the Great Migration, and a lot of public health officials actually scapegoated uh, those communities for living in overcrowded and and unsanitary conditions. What does that mean now, 100 years later, that we're still talking about really high degrees of residential um, segregation, and what does overcrowding and unsanitary conditions mean for African Americans in 2020? So clearly, if those same kinds of conditions didn't, don't exist now, those were not the reasons why people were suffering disproportionately um, mm. in 1918. Um, and so thinking through a 100-year um, lens doesn't give me a lot of um, cause for optimism, in, in the same way that thinking about a 100-year lens of police brutality. <laughs> doesn't give me a lot of cause for optimism. People want to talk about a post-racial society and how much progress um, we um, we have made. But here we are in 2020, facing and staring down police brutality and facing and staring down determinants of health that have one underlying factor, race. And so I hope as we continue to have this um, discussion and the rest of the podcast that we can come back to that enduring legacy and presence of race in our day-to-day lives and our health outcomes.
0: Thank you, Fiona, for providing us with the context of 100 years to think about as we um, proceed um, in this analysis and discussion. Um, so I'm going to ask Lucinda, the nurse, to sh- sh- to talk to us about how COVID-19 and equity intersect with her work.
4: Yes, and COVID-19 really shined a light on a lot of the disparities that many of us already knew existed. You know, like some people think this is all new, but you could look at HIV, you can look at breast cancer, where women are, Black women are, have the least number of diagnoses, but they're more likely to die. And in my research, I really looked at maternal health, because I want to understand, and I feel like it parallels with COVID nineteen, because it, I feel like it's that same system. And Black women are three or four times more likely to die from a pregnancy related cause, and twice as likely than white women to come close to dying. And they say over sixty percent of these deaths are preventable. So I want to know why. I'm like, and same with COVID nineteen. Why are we more likely to die? And and I feel like we're going through the same thing that I started with my research and it always starts with blaming the victim. I I wanna say I don't like to really use the word victim, but I feel like in our system, that's what a lot of black women, a lot of black people find themselves, that space we find ourselves in. I was told they start prenatal care late, they have chronic conditions, they're obese, they're uncontrolled medical conditions and they don't see a primary care doctor. They don't have health insurance, they're uneducated. So when I did my study, I interviewed women who, again, came close to dying. They all started prenatal care before 10 weeks. One started, she was like two weeks pregnant. Basically at conception, she started prenatal care. Um, They they say that they don't have college degrees when the women in my study had master's degrees, doctoral degrees. You know, everyone in my study had from high school all the way up to their PhD. Only out of the nine women I talked to, three had chronic conditions, were in healthcare, had a primary care provider, and were controlled before they were pregnant. These women, they were active, they ate right, and they still experienced a life-threatening condition. So when we control for all those things, where people live, their socioeconomic status, when it came to maternal mortality, it didn't matter. You were still at risk for dying, or you died. And so it really, for me as a nurse, I had to think about, what are the root causes of that? And I'm still continuing to, to look into that um, to look into that within our healthcare system is really that there's this, I feel like, um, and I'm going all the way back, you went back 100 years, I'm going back to slavery, where we really didn't fit into the healthcare system in the United States. You know, we, we had segregation, we couldn't go to the hospital, even if it was down the street. If there was a complication, uh, you know, gunshot wound, an accident, the hospital was five minutes from you, you couldn't go there. So I feel like it's not, it's, there is issues with access to care currently, but I, I think it's more access to quality care. One of the common themes that the woman told me was that I told my healthcare provider and they said, oh, you know, you're fine. One patient was told that she had um, a little, she was, had chest pain, she couldn't breathe two nights in a row, went in to get healthcare and was told you have just a little angina. On her way home, a doc, another, before she even left the hospital, a doctor stopped her and said, you can't go home. Did further tests, her heart was functioning at a 10% ejection fraction. Meaning, and she said that she was told if she didn't improve in three months, she would need a new heart. So she almost went home. And I always wonder about those women or those patients that are told you're okay and you go home mm-hmm. and then something happens and you're still blamed for what happens. So I just feel like as that we really have to look at our system, we have to start blaming the people who are most impacted by this. I think we need to talk to them more though to see their story, because right now we have other peoples telling their stories through statistics.
0: Mm. Thank you, Lucinda, for that. Um, yeah, historically was the lack of access today is um, being heard and um it's racial stress, I'm sure, and also um, the disparity um, by providers, health providers, as it relates to black people in this country, right? Yes. Thank you for that. Okay, so we have the two social workers. I'm gonna start with Gina, and I'm going to let Yvonne sort of wrap it up and bring it all home.
3: Thank you. So, uh, where to begin? First of all, we don't know exactly how the LGBTQ community is impacted by COVID because of uh, systematic institutionalized homophobia and transphobia has meant there are no statistics gathered, period, on sexual uh, orientation or gender identity. And this is deliberate on the part of the federal government because they have withdrawn from uh, uh, collecting data in other areas uh, of, uh, in health and human services. And so we kind of have to do this as a workaround um, based on what we know about LGBT, LGBTQ folks. Um, first of all, we know that um, one in five LGBTQ people live in poverty and 40% of homeless youth are LGBTQ And so we know that those people are disproportionately impacted. Uh, One in 10 are unemployed, 17% lack health coverage, 37% smoke compared to 27% of the general population. Um, And we know that smoking is uh, um, one of the risk factors for poor outcomes for COVID and uh, 21% of LGBTQ folks have asthma compared to 14% of the general population. Um, Among people who are living in poverty, uh, trans, black, and brown folks are most likely to live in poverty and experience the worst of the discrimination. So you have the intersection there. Uh, We know that LGBTQ people work in uh, industries that are most impacted by COVID, such as restaurants and food service, hospitals, K-12 education and retail, and that people are afraid, oftentimes, of taking leads uh, 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 from work, if they have work at this point, uh, for fear of discrimination. We know that queer people tend to avoid going to the doctor for a lot of reasons. Um, There is a a level of distrust, and you have a combined impact of distrust for being a queer person Uh, in part because this current administration has uh, worked to retract rules around protections for people and actively sought to promote uh, faith-based regulations that would allow anyone who is in the medical field who has a religious objection to someone being lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, or questioning, uh, from uh, they would say if it goes against their religious practices, that they could deny giving health care, period. And so people are afraid that if they go for health care coverage, if they go to receive services, that they could be denied services. And we have documented stories of people dying because they were not provided with health healthcare. Um, we have, uh, and of course that mistrust is compounded if you're a person of color, especially in light of things like Tuskegee, which I'm sure we all know about. Um, and all of that stigma is doubled for trans people. And uh, people are also feared being deprioritized for COVID related care after the way people were treated during the HIV and AIDS epidemic. Um, One of the things that we're seeing is um, during the HIV epidemic, people were uh, denied transplants. Uh, At a certain point, even after there was care, medical care available to sustain people's lives, uh, they were still denied transplants. And so people are afraid that they will be denied um, ventilators. At this point um and we know that people gay men specifically have been turned away from providing blood for antibodies because of homophobia and the assumption that any gay man who is sexually active must be hiv positive mm-hmm. and that you're hearing recent stories like in the last few weeks where men have been turned away from providing their blood for the purpose of developing anti you know f- antibodies for to have a um, vaccine.
0: Okay, thank you yeah. for that, Gina. Appreciate it. Um, it's great to hear the voice of uh, the LGBTQ community. Um, so, Yvonne, I'm going to go to you now.
1: As um, uh, thank you for for allowing me to um, respond to this question. Um, one of the bigger issues that are out there for me is um, how, and in my profession, I've, I've seen it mostly, is that we have a tendency to concentrate on individual behavior, right? So when there's an outbreak or, or some issue that is happening in our um, society, whether it's a health disparity or not, and I've done research in terms of HIV AIDS, the, the literature is inundated with issues around how women should protect themselves or whether or not women should protect themselves. And what we tend to um, not pay a critical lens to, but I think COVID-19 has shined its light on it and we, we can't help but look at it, is the structural issues that are going on in our society and have been for a long time. And as a social worker, one of the the things that we come to learn from the very beginning is that social workers are poised to really work with vulnerable populations. And so what we have to um, make clear is why those populations are vulnerable in the first place. And what distinctively the answer or the narrative that is wrapped around the vulnerability of people, and I don't really love that term, but just for the purpose of this conversation, the the narrative that is continuously told is that there's something that is happening or something that this person or this group of people is doing which creates a, a greater risk for them. And when we bring ourselves to that narrative or we immerse ourselves in that narrative, I think we miss the whole picture because that, when we create that narrative, the response then is to correct behavior. But when we tell the story differently, right? When we say that there's structural issues and not only structural oppression, but um, our society is structurally violent, then we we have to match that narrative or that explanation with a response that is more appropriate. And so for us, or for me, what COVID-19 has done has exposed The structural issue, because of their marginalizations, because of their exploitation, and all of these different things that have happened to them, it has put them in a position to where they are the ones that are impacted the most by the the disease, or people who, or groups of people who have been oppressed for many years are in a position where they are impacted the most by this disease. And so as as a um, person or as a faculty member, that has been one of the, the hardest thing for me to do in the classroom and as a faculty member of color is to switch the conversation around from individual behavior to a discussion of macro issues or structural issues that are at play in our society.
0: Thank you for that. And I think you have helped us to segue to that, even though we started out. But just looking at the narrative of the individual, right? Blaming the individual or the individual group, or, you know, whether it's LGBTQ or people of color, particularly Black people, we tend to get it harder than ever. That, um, in some ways, it's violence, right? The powerful. Attacking the marginalized and those that are um, those and, and attacking those individuals, but also the trauma that we experience we've experienced historically as well as currently, right the killing of black bodies being one, the number of deaths because of covid nineteen the number of hospitalization, and just the stigma that sort of um, uh, and, you know, just sort of, you know, um, is, is part of that narrative. Can we talk a little bit about that? Can we talk about how we change the narrative from the blaming of the individual to looking at the system? How do we expose the system? What is the system? What is that structure that's causing so much violence and trauma? Um. Who would like to start? Um, I can. Okay. Uh,
4: well, I can start. Um, and I'll need help with this from you experts. <laughs> but we know racism is a big part of the, a lot of the root of all these issues that we see. And it's not something that's easy to talk about. You know, it's like everyone thinks that for people of color, it's easy to talk about racism, but I can tell you as an African-American woman, it's not. And a lot of it has to do with when you experience it yourself, those wounds go deep. That pain is deep. And so, because I am working with nursing students and I want them prepared when they go into the real world, I talk about it. And I wanna create a space where it's safe and I know that we're gonna be uncomfortable and I do, sometimes I start out with saying this is a sensitive issue, but we have to talk about it because it's like, and we're seeing now, this is a life or death situation. It's not just about someone they don't like you, you know, um, they make they say the wrong thing and you're offended. It goes deeper than that. It's about preventing opportunities. It's about making people not feel safe in a certain space. And when you're looking at healthcare, when we're looking at COVID, when we're looking at any kind of health issue is really, if you're faced with someone who feels like you're less than, you don't belong, it, they feel entitled to have something that you want, You know, I can go on and on, but when that happens, it's for the person, the result of that is more likely death or severe injury. And even if you survive that, there's still wounds that you were treated differently because of the color of your skin or where you live or where you're from or your sexual orientation. Those, again, I say those wounds run deep because when an incident happens, even if it's as a child, I can tell you things that happened when I was like six years old and it brings up that same pain. So, and how does that impact how I made it through life? How did I navigate in certain systems? So I feel like we need to talk about it more so that people understand where the experience and the trauma, that's the result of that but also bring awareness because a lot of people are talking about implicit bias right now. Oh, I didn't know. I wasn't aware of what I was doing was putting that person's life at risk. And that's a serious situation. It's not just like, oh, I made a mistake and we can move on. It's really saying, but you did cause some harm. How Mm -hmm. can we prevent that from happening again? And for those who haven't done that yet, we have to prevent it. We have to make sure that they're aware of the challenges in our society. We can't ignore them. We have to, even if it doesn't directly impact you, you have to be aware. You have to understand what your behaviors can do to somebody else.
0: Mm -hmm. Thanks for that.
1: Go ahead. You know, I think it moves, um, and thank you Lucinda, I agree with you 100%, but I think it moves beyond just individual acts or individual levels of um, racism, and I think you alluded to this as well. It's the policies and how the policies are structured in such a way to create um, vulnerability. It, it's, it's not only the policies that are created, but how agents who are, put at the home to to, um, unfold those policies, um, implement those policies in the first place. But I I think it's more of a macro issue than anything else. And and when I I say macro issue, if we look um, at housing, for example, when we look at redlining, and we talk about residential segregation, and how people who are concentrated in a specific area are more likely to come in contact with specific diseases. Those are not issues around people's behavior, which is the case for African descent populations who are low income and contract HIV AIDS. Most of them live in a very dense area, right? And are um, primarily because of de facto segregation cannot come out of those areas because of policies that have been created over a long period of time whether it be um, residential policies around segregation, whether it be um, policies around credit worthiness and people's um, limited opportunity to buy housing, or whether it be discriminatory practices in other neighboring towns, which, which would limit their access to it, whether it be policies that are embedded within Section 8, so that um, some people can't even move in with their relatives, whether it be policies where certain towns are not accepting Section 8. And so the policies themselves, the system, the institutions themselves, really are problematic. Mm
5: -hmm. And I'd like to extend upon both Lucinda and Yvonne's point. So when you look at those two components, the individual factors and the contextual factors, we are left or people are left in this community to make choices that reflect the contextual factor that they are surrounded by. So it's not they have, they're individually doing, these are the choices that they have. If you look at food insecurity, if you have a food desert area, lack of um, produce, healthy produce in the community or lack of supermarket, what other option do you leave the community to choose. So the policy or the contextual factor that we like to use in public health those contextual factor constrain the individual to make the choices that is available to them. Right? right? Thank you.